Well, welcome here. My name is John, if I haven't met you. And uh, yeah, I, I, along with uh, Sarah and Mitch, have the joy and privilege and honor of leading here. Um, very grateful that you're joining us on this long weekend. It's always like a coin toss. How many people will show up? Seven? Seventy? Seven hundred? I don't know. Long weekend, but glad you're here. Um, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about where we are as a church, and, and uh, especially if you're new, this will help you give you context to where we are and what we're doing today. So I think the church is about 16 years old, and I'd say that we've gone through uh, four different stages together as a church, which isn't to say that we are better in stage four or worse uh, in stage one, but just to talk about kind of where we've come from and, and who we are. So this church was, was planted out of another church in the city called Westside. Started with just a few people meeting in an office building, and then we moved over to Dickens School, which is across the road. And uh, we had a bunch of interns, a lot of energy, a lot of like, especially young couples and single people at that time. Um, and, uh, and it was like a, a lot of energy and, and a lot of beautiful things happened. And that was kind of the first stage. And the second stage, we actually moved over into this building. So we don't own this building, as Mitch said. We rent it. And uh, it, it, it was a, a change, uh, I would say, to more permanence in our community. And some of the things changed. Some of the things that were kind of maybe more hard over there became a little bit softer as we moved here. We became, that was kind of the first wave of people who left the city. Um, if you know people, you kind of have in Vancouver a four to seven year window, maybe three to seven year window to get to know people before about half of them move away. And so uh, nervous laughter. Um, and uh, so, so that happened and, and we became kind of a new group of people as we moved over here. And in that time, also the founding pastor and his family, they, they decided to step down. And they, they moved uh, on to another place. And so we went through a third season, which was a season of um, kind of just change. Uh, we didn't have a pastor for several years. Um, we shrank as a community. And then I became the pastor about three years ago. And um, right after I became the pastor, we, we went through covid and so that changed, as you know, everything um, about this community. And again, once again, we saw a lot of people move away. We had a lot of families and people here, but specifically families. You know, they're living in 700 square feet, paying $3,000 a month with two kids. And they're like, you know what, I can go move to Guelph or whatever and live in my parents' basement and get money for a down payment. That's a Guelph shout-out for you, Jade. Um, but uh, th th this honestly happened. People moved all over the world. And, and so one of the things as a pastor that I became the best at was blessing and sending people. And so about a year, a year ago, we sent one of the last group of people. And these are all people who are really close to me and our family and also uh, good friends. It was, it, was both a, it was a bittersweet time where we get to send and bless them. Um, and then uh, in, in the midst of all of that, too, the, the chapel building... Um, exploded. Basically, we had a flood here in the basement, and then they cut into asbestos in the furnace room, and it blew all over the building. Um, and so we, we were a year where we were out of this space, and we were kind of nomads meeting in different places. And, and, uh, and so that was the third uh, stage. So we kind of asked at the end of that third stage as leadership, we're like, what is going on here? Like, is God trying to shut us down? What are we doing? And we decided as leadership that we were going to move into kind of a fourth stage, which is to say we want to take all the things that God has done, the beautiful things he's done, that have been uh, true of all three stages in the past, and we want to move into a new expression of who God is calling us to be. So we started that just about almost exactly a year ago. And the first thing that we started, we're talking about uh, different shifts that we want to make. So the things that have always been true about our community is that we're focused on Jesus, that we see church as a family, 
And we want to be people for the city and we want to be about movement or on mission together. And we, we're making shifts in all of those areas to, to move, we're calling them from something to something. And so the first shift that we talked about that we spent almost a year talking about was moving from being a group of people who are bounded in our understanding of Jesus to being centered on Jesus. And so we've talked about this for a very, very long time. And uh, some of the diagrams that I'm going to show like this, they might give you a little bit of PTSD because they were up like every week for like 20 or 30 weeks in a row. But I want to explain it quickly because we've got a lot of new people here about what we're talking about when we talk about moving from bounded to centered. So every group has a way of organizing themselves, showing who's in and who's out in the group. And a bounded set community does this by creating and enforcing boundaries. So this big blue line is, is like the boundary of who's in and who's out. Their beliefs and behaviors that help identify people. And so in church land, for example, baptism can be one of these things. If you're baptized, then you're in. Or if you agree with our statement of faith, uh, then you're in. And, and statement of faith and baptism are, are good things. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Um, it's not like they're bad, but it's about the way that you hold them. If they become a boundary, then they keep people out and they say that other people are in. And, and what happens here is that people then can't question. People who are on the inside who have questions, fears, doubts, which I think we all have. Um, it's very hard to question these things because they seem like solid boundaries that can't be moved. And people who are outside also who have questions can be hurt. And so lots of us have experienced this kind of bruising that comes with bounded set churches where you can't ask questions, for example, and, uh, and so we, we react to that. And so the second kind of group that's created, which also focuses on boundaries, is called a fuzzy set community or a fuzzy community. And basically what you do is you just take away all the boundaries and you say, oh, everybody's in. Nobody's out. Everybody is okay. Um, but one author said this, if a bounded set community in a church creates bruised fruit, then a fuzzy set community creates no fruit. Because there's no call then. There's no ability to call each other into following Jesus, into moving in a certain direction together. And so we don't want to do either of those two things. Either, both of those groups are actually really, really focused on the boundaries of what's in, who's in and who's out and what those boundaries are. But we want to focus and move into a third way of thinking, which is called a centered set group. And it's not about the boundaries, but about two different things. First is, what is our shared center? What is at the middle of our community? And so we have identified that that is Jesus, the person of Jesus, King Jesus, is the center of this community. And that's the most important and weighty thing for us, that we want to be around Jesus. And then it doesn't become about boundaries, but it becomes about direction. Which direction are you moving? Are you moving towards Jesus, or are you moving away from him? And you can be very, very close to the center, um, like this guy on the top in black and white. Maybe you're like a leader at the church. Maybe you're like the most Christian-y Christian of all time. But you're actively saying no to God right now in an area of your life. Or you can be someone super far away, like this girl on the top left. Maybe you're just here. Maybe you're like, don't even know why you're here. Maybe you don't like Christians. Maybe you have no idea about Jesus, but for some reason you found yourself here today. You're taking a step forward. And so we want to celebrate that with you and, and say you're moving in the direction of Jesus. And that's what we want to be, is a church of people who keep Jesus at the center and then move towards him. And so things like baptism are still really important, but the question isn't so much, are you baptized or are you not? But is that the next step? in your following Jesus, in your apprenticeship to Jesus, in your discipleship to him. 
And then secondly, what mean, this means is that we'll have a lot of people coming from different places. So we'll have people, for example, with different opinions about all sorts of social issues, all sorts of political issues, all sorts of theological issues. We'll have ethnic diversity. We'll have age diversity. And that, in other communities, what they do is they just clump together. All the people who are the same clump together in one place. But in this kind of a community, our hope and our prayer, and I think what's coming up is that we have a bit of diversity. And so that can also cause friction. But we went through a, a process of discernment in the start of this year called community hermeneutic that gives us a bit of a, a way forward in how we might be able to process those differences. So when somebody says something to you and you think, boy, that's crazy, or like another Christian would never say that type of thing, it's not, it doesn't have to be a combative thing, but we can just start to ask a question. Tell me your story. How did you arrive to that? I'm at a very different spot, but I'd love to hear how you arrived there. And we center that story around Jesus. That person's story is so important, but it doesn't stand at the center of our community. Jesus does. And we go to God's story, and we, when we look at it together, what does that mean for whatever issue we're discussing? And then we discern the, the Holy Spirit together. And that's how we move forward together as a diverse community. So that's one of the, the first big shift that, we, that we've tackled. And we're going to continue to lean into it. But right now, we're going to move into another big shift. And it's uh, called From Relevance to Resonance. And this is how we think about ourselves as a church, but also how we think about the mission that we have ahead of us. From Relevance to Resonance. And so to do this today is going to be a bit unique, because I'm just going to give us, start to give us some vocabulary for this word resonance. And so in order to do that, I'm going to introduce you to a German sociologist named Hartmut Rosa. This is him. And this is how he sees his job as a sociologist. He says, if you were, I think of it like this, if, if you were an alien with really good cameras watching from outer space, what would you see in the world? In the Western world, if you just followed it along for several hundred years. And he, as a sociologist, has said he would, he would really boil it down to one word. Is this acceleration would be the word. What, we, what you would see is the world speeding up again and again and again and again. So he said, if you look back a couple hundred years ago, you'd only see a few boats, for example, going from one place to another, and they'd be moving pretty slowly. But then if you fast forward, you'd see steamships going, and then trains, and even things like bikes, to moving to cars and to planes. Right now, there are over a million people flying in planes over us in the world. And now we even have rockets. And so things, people and things, are moving super fast throughout the world. You see this speeding up that's happening. But it's not only people and things, it's, it's ideas. For example, the internet has allowed us to share ideas. And the speed of information is sped up, that we can get and receive information. And of course, this affects us in our mobility as well. Many of us are actually not here from Vancouver. Um, I just met some people here who are visiting from Ottawa today. I think there's people visiting from all over the world. Um, it's because of this mobility, and so our lives are sped up. Now, there's lots of good things about this. For example, the first one is that we can see the world. You can come from Ottawa here for a few months, or you can come from you know, Japan or wherever, and you can come be here, and we can do vice versa. If we had enough money and time, we could go to New York, Casablanca, Paris today, catch a flight there. And so this is a really good thing. We're also able to share information, and that uh, nets out in some really positive things. We were able to have a vaccine for a deadly pandemic in a very, very short period of time. I know it felt like a really long period of time, but in the history of the world, it was very, very short. That life is almost back to normal now on the other side of it, just a few years later. And we like this speed, I think. It's, it's, it increases our hold and control over the world. And it connects us to all sorts of different communities, for example, online. We have things that are shipped to us the next day 
from all over the world. Whatever we want can get de- delivered by, the, the, uh, by Amazon Prime to us in the next day. And, you know, if you want to go on right now on your phone, you can find all the cat memes that have ever been made just by one little click of your phone. But his point, so the world is accelerating, and this is, brings some positive stuff for us, but also his, he, he realized that there are some things in our world that resist acceleration. There are some things in our world that can't, aren't made to run at the speed of consistent um, acceleration. And so he, he uses the word that some things have a speed limit, basically. And he gives a couple examples. The first one is ecology. So he says, trees grow at a certain rate. And we can cut them down. That's not a problem. We've been cutting them down since the beginning of time. But if we cut them down faster than they grow, it becomes a real problem called deforestation in our world. We can fish and we can hunt. People have been doing that as well since the beginning of time. But if we do it too quickly, we use up the resources. And faster than animals can repopulate. And it becomes a real problem for humanity. If we use up the natural resources faster than they can replenish, it also becomes a problem. And so the natural world has a speed that it's supposed to run at. And when we are just accelerating all the time, what happens is those things, he calls it desynchronization. They start to run on different speeds. And he says the world, actually, this beautiful place that we live in, actually becomes a place of hostility to us rather than a home. So there are different speeds. Another example that he gives is democracy. He says democracy, you know, maybe not the best, maybe not the worst. But it's a time-consuming activity. It takes time in order to do good democracy. And as the world gets more complex and society becomes more pluralistic, it takes even more time because we have more differences that we need to work through. But our desire for acceleration, that decisions should be made very, very fast and they should consider us and the government should get everything right, it runs counter to the speed that we need to run at for democracy. And so he says these things get out of sync. Our desire for things to move faster and faster and the need for good democracy or the the time needed for good democracy, it causes desynchronization. And so we feel frustration and anger and confusion. And many theorists say that we're at a point of crisis in our democracy because of this. But it also affects us as this this desire for acceleration. It, It affects us as churches And it affects us as people as well, which is where this comes home for us. Let's talk about churches first. If we apply the logic of acceleration to churches, then one of the things we'll think is that a good church is a church that's always innovating. Always innovating, always providing new and more offerings. And one of my mentors, uh, Andy Root, he says that what we've done in the church is we've exchanged the sacred rhythms of a spiritual life, which probably look much more seasonal, much more like a tree, We've exchanged those sacred rhythms for the timekeeping of Silicon Valley, which is how fast can you go up up and to the right? How much market share can you take? And so rather than learning how to watch and wait for a God who arrives, we promise people a purpose-driven life in 40 days or less. Rather than seeing suffering as a gymnasium for developing the character of God to become more like Jesus, we pray for a God who will quickly alleviate our suffering so we can get back to our regular scheduled program. This is what it means for us as a church. We also become obsessed then with growing. Um, In church land in the last 50 years, they talk about the five B's of church growth. So it's babies, baptisms, butts and seats, budgets and buildings. These five things. We're doing really well with babies, by the way. That one, you guys are making making Mitch and I look really good. but it's, it's these things. If that, this is the vision of what it means to be a good and growing church, is that these things are growing for you. 
that they're growing. And the logic here is that growth is good, and therefore when God is present, he will provide growth. That is God's blessing in our world. And there's some truth to that, but I think it's not the center. And, And we see the outcome, the negative outcome of thinking that way. One of the real negative outcomes of thinking that way is we have no vision and no place for story for, for times that life is going like this, for, going su- for suffering times. Somebody I read said that the Western church has lots of stories and language for mountaintop and nothing for the valley. And that can be true. Henry Nouwen calls this downward mobility. We have no stories. We have no language for this kind of, of way of thinking. And I think there's also a hollowness to this way of thinking, if we think about it. That it, if, if our church is just trying to grow, 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 we can from 100 to 200, 200 to 500, 500 to 1,000, at the end we can look back and say, for what? What was the point of it? And we can actually become alienated from the reason that we're here, which is to follow Jesus. A very relational thing, to know Jesus and to know people who are going to walk along that path with us. The second thing is that we can also not only absorb this story as churches, but we can absorb the story of acceleration as individuals. And we res- so we, we conceive of the good life. We think of what's best in terms of a story of acceleration. Hartmut Rosa uses this, this language of AAA. He calls it the AAA life. That our, our vision of the good life is that life is more available, accessible, and attainable. That we're always working to make resources and things more available, accessible, attainable. And I think this is very, very true, the story that we've been told about our lives. And we feel the need to dynamize, he calls it, or accelerate ourselves. So, you know, in his German voice, he's like, fast food, speed dating, power naps, step counters, and he just goes on and on and on about it. My, sorry, my German's not very good, but he talks about going for a walk and forgetting his step counter. And maybe you've had this experience too. And he gets back and he realized he didn't have a step counter with him. And he's like, oh, it wasn't even worth it. What was the point of this walk? It's like it didn't even happen because he wasn't able to compare it to other walks that he'd taken. And we feel like we should have more time, but we always feel rushed. And Rosa, one of the things that's very interesting to me, and he, he, he highlights this, he's very interested in it, is two psychological phenomena that are seeing a massive rise right now in our world. Depression and burnout. Depression and burnout. And he says these experiences might be examples, or he says they are. They're examples seeing the rise in them of desynchronization, where our world is telling us that we have to go faster and faster and faster, and the human's body is just saying, no, I can't go that fast. And I would add anxiety in here, too, that there's a fear, as, especially for young people, as they look ahead, that they feel like there's just acceleration, constant acceleration ahead of them in their lives. And so they feel deep anxiety about this. And he says, we're heating up the atmosphere and burning out our soul. So we experience what he calls alienation. This word is really important for him. It's, it's, a, it's an experience of the world where rather than it becoming a home and a joy for us, it becomes a place of indifference and hostility. Nothing or, or, or very little will speak to us. The world becomes mute. We don't feel alive or activated into the world, and rather it becomes gray and flat and hollow and lifeless and cold. And Rosa says that our deepest fear as Western people is this alienation. That the world would stop and people and things will stop speaking to us. But he also says it's one of the biggest realities of our world that we experience. One of the biggest West current realities. 
So you might think, wow, this guy is depressing. And I, I told you he was German at the very beginning, so don't be surprised. Um, but here's where the payoff comes for us, because he says alienation has an opposite, and he calls it resonance. I want you to listen to what one author says about resonance. Resonance reverses alienation's toxin. When we sense that there is something in the world reaching out for us, pleased to join us, desiring to share in us as we share in it, speaking to us, we encounter resonance. And we claim to find ourselves in something good. Resonant experiences are full. You feel a resonant between yourself and the world, a felt relationship that reverberates at the frequency of the good. You confess that such experiences really spoke to you, touched you. You weren't sure what you'd find when you started reading that poem, watching that movie, or making faces with that child. But soon you found yourself caught up in something, freely bound to someone, or open to some way of seeing that made you certain you were inside a gift called life. You encountered a deep sense that life was calling out to you, seeking to include you. In resonance, we rest in the good of the present. We feel not like we're speeding on the surface of the world, but we're deeply connected to the world and those in it. In these moments, time is felt not as accelerating, but as full. And we rest in the good of just being alive, of having this full moment of feeling connected to our own bodies, to a friend, and to the God who sees and sends. This is a description of resonance. It's the opposite of alienation. And I'd say it's what we were made for as people. And it's what's on offer from a God, as Root says, a God who sees and a God who sends. So I want to take a, a further exploration of what is this idea of resonance, and then we'll, we'll at the end, apply it to us as, as a community. So what is resonance? There's two relational movements, Rosa says. We're going to talk about the first one first. So he calls it affection and emotion. Affection and emotion. So affection is that something speaks to you. Something in the world calls out to you. Something affects you. And then emotion is that you're emotionally dragged in. That you're moved or you feel like you need to make a response to this thing that's calling out to you. Let me just give you a couple examples from my own life. And then I'm going to actually pass it back to you and ask you to share with a few people around you if you've had an experience of resonance. But let me just give us some examples uh, and some, some kind of handholds for us to move ahead. So he says, this is resonance, that affection, something speaks to you, and then you feel called out to it in emotion. But he says there's sources of resonance in our world. So there's a horizontal, a diagonal, and a vertical source. Let me give you examples of what those are. The horizontal source is a relational source. So friends, family, and then he says politics. If you felt resonant with politics recently, I'd be very interested to talk to you. Um, but I was trying to think of, I'll try to give you an example of my own, from my own life. One of the most resonant experiences that I've had in relationship with people is uh, the lament nights that we have here. And so we had our last lament night, uh, which is just a night where people come and tell their stories about what's going on in their lives. And they lament, they cry out, they cry, and we just experience the brokenness of our world together. And so we did the last one just before Christmas. And I, I always find that those nights speak to me so deeply. The last one that we had was here, and, and there weren't very many people here. But I was sitting at the back, and I remember just feeling, even though there weren't a lot of people here, the emotion that was, as people shared their stories with, with us, that I felt drawn out emotionally, and it just the space felt full. I don't know if I can use a different word than that. And I felt connection with each person that, that shared. And the other word that came to mind is I just felt deeply honored. 
that people would share their stories with me. I felt very spoken to. It was a very resonant moment for me. So that's the horizontal uh, axes. The, next, the second one is the diagonal. And he says, we don't think about this one as Western people very much. For example, our, our indigenous brothers and sisters have a deep connection to place and things. And if you're from an old, warm culture, you probably have this idea. But we kind of don't really have a space for it in the, in the West. But he says, it could be things or it could be work. Or it could be school. And he gives this really great example, and I know we have a lot of teachers here, so let me, let me uh, read this one for us. He says, Teachers at every level have all experienced one of those difficult classes where nothing gets across, and consequently they get nothing back. The more often a school proves to be a zone of alienation in this sense, the higher the burnout rate among the teaching staff. There's that connection again between alienation and burnout. But every teacher has also had the opposite experience. However, lessons in which they reach their students and successfully communicate the material, in which they make the material speak, and in this way, they encounter it anew themselves. Then the triangle of alienation is transformed into a triangle of resonance. And I assume if you're a teacher, but even if you're whatever job you do, you're a healthcare worker, you have clients, you have that experience where you're just like, what am I doing with my life? It feels like you're pouring out, and it feels like alienation. And then one client, one student, one friend has an interaction with you that completely changes everything. It's a resonant moment. And so these, these are resonant moments in, in diagonal space. Then let's talk about the vertical axis as the final one. So this is God, nature, and art. When we experience resonance from God, nature, uh, and art. So let me give you an example. Um, from me. I, I think art probably would be the number one space that I uh, experience it. But last summer, one of the most resonant experiences that I had, it was probably the highlight of my summer, is that I went on this trip, uh, this organization called CCLN, took a bunch of pastors for free up the Jervis Inlet to uh, mount this place called Malibu. Beautiful place if you've ever been up the Jervis Inlet. So we're all in this boat for three hours going up the Jervis Inlet. So it's 50 extroverted pastors and their spouses, which is not my idea of resonance, more my idea of hell, if you know me. Uh, we're stuck on this boat together. So I kept going out onto the, to just like leave this space of extroversion. And uh, this is the Jervis Inlet, if you've never been up there. Absolutely stunning. So you're on this waterway, which is the ocean, and there's just these green mountains super close to you on either side. And the sun was just beaming down. And it's just one of those deeply resonant moments for me. Of just standing in nature, the grandeur of nature, and feeling so, so small, but so, so connected to everything. It just spoke to me and reached out. So all of us experience resonance at different times. And he says the world teems with resonance, and, and also it's those places where we feel alive and connected. So I want you, in, in groups of two or three, to just turn to one another. So you can just introduce yourselves. And just, what, what's an experience of resonance that you've had in the recent past? So just think of it in two spaces. What spoke to you? What spoke to you? I should say it this way. What spoke to you? And then what emotion did it draw out of you? How did you feel connected? Okay. Now, okay, I want to um, move on. I, I want to be really clear here. I don't think all resonance is God. I don't think that that's where we need to go. But I do think, as you guys were talking about, as you were sharing, resonance is a, is a blessing from God. As followers of Jesus, we can see that all resonance is a blessing from God because it's part of the good world that he's created. That he's created us to be connected with him, connected with ourselves, connected with other people, connected with our world. That this is the world, this is the vision of shalom that the Bible has. And I think my experience of, of being on that boat 
going up to Jervis Island or standing in front of rhododendrons or being with a child. The difference between that as a follower of Jesus and not a follower of Jesus is that I think there is someone that stands behind all of those things and gives them as a good gift. So, remember, there's two parts to resonance, and now I want to move into the second one, second section. So, affection, something speaks to you and draws you out emotionally. But the second step is really, really important because it moves something from being a nice experience, almost like a consumeristic experience, to true resonance. And so, Rosa says there's two more things. The first is transformation. True resonance invites us to act. It invites the deepest parts of us to change. And it's not an imposition. That would be alienation. But it's, it's a partnership. This is what he says. It's almost as if the world or the other or the work or the art has always been waiting for us to join in the action. That's the feeling of resonance. That there's a desire to participate in this world. And so there's a transformation, a call to act. And then the secondly, he says, and this is really important, it's elusive. There's an elusive quality to resonance. We can't control it. We can't promise that it will happen at a certain place or a certain time. And resonance is always elusive, especially for us as followers of Jesus, because there is someone who stands behind it that is bigger than us. It's an encounter with something bigger than ourselves. So last, a couple weeks ago, I shared an example of resonance for me. For me. I, uh, uh, I had, was diagnosed with colon cancer about three years ago. And uh, thankfully, I'm on the other side of that. But, it, but I was going through uh, chemo and radiation. And I was feeling quite sorry for myself at this time. And so I would go into BC Cancer five days a week and receive radiation. And it was, I, I said a couple weeks ago, it was a dehumanizing process. That was the wrong word. It's an emasculating process. You just take, you leave your shirt on, you take your pants off and underwear off, and you kind of just stand there, and then you go into this room. It's like, it's like a Winnie the Pooh type situation. I was like, I'm a, I'm a man, not a bear who likes honey. And, and you lie down, and then they shoot you with lasers for about 10 minutes. And I would lie on this bench for the first part of it and just basically feel sorry for myself, honestly. Why, God? Like, what is going on? Uh, and if you just feel so helpless, I, I shouldn't say you. I felt so helpless. But I felt God calling me in that time to just pray, to turn that into a time of prayer. So I'd pray Psalm 23 every day, every time I lie down on that bench. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And those words just became like a, a totem for me. And God met me in that space. And I would pray for the people that were there. My eyes got off myself. I would pray for you as part of this community. And I can't tell you, it turned from a place of hum, um, being humbled, feeling humiliated, to a place of deep, deep resonance. Now, here's what we can't do. I can't say, here, you want to experience resonance? Here's what you do. Go to BC Cancer. You follow the red line, then the blue line, then the yellow line. You go to the back door. You give this guy named Joe 20 bucks, okay? He'll let you in the room with the machine. He won't even turn it on. You take your pants off. You leave your shirt on. You lie down, you pray Psalm 23, God will show up. It doesn't work like that. And we all know that. But that is, that is very true about the resonance that we experience, that we can't control it. And here's where it moves from maybe sociology to theology. I, I think God is in the resonance business. And we're moving into the book of Acts. And there are so many experiences that people have with this God who shows up. Let me just read one for you. 
Remember, the story is that Jesus, we've been looking at his life, Jubilee, through, through Luke, and then Acts is the next, uh, the next volume in the story. So Jesus takes off, and here's what happens. It says, on the day of Pentecost had arrived, and all the people were together in one place, and suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. To me, all the elements of resonance are just right there. But look, this is a wild story, okay? I think it's a very specific thing that happened in a specific time to a specific group of people. We can't recreate that story here. If you feel a violent, wild wind blowing from the back, it's probably just Mitch at the back with a bunch of fans, okay? I don't think it's the same story. We're not supposed to hold that. But here's the thing. This happens over and over and over again in Acts. This where God shows up. It happens over and over and over again in the Bible. It happens over and over again in the history of Christianity. I think of this guy, Brother Lawrence. I don't know if any of you have read his book. He was just a monk. He just washed dishes. Washed dishes. But he experienced, he, he, through his prayer life, he would experience the presence of God in powerful ways. Here's one of his statements. He said, I have had thoughts about God so charming and delicious that I'm ashamed to mention them. So charming. This is a monk. This is the most sensual language he's allowed to use. Charming and delicious thoughts about God while washing dishes. And, and here's the thing, I, I think, that God still wants to show up. He is showing up all the time. He did it for me on that radiation table. He does it when we pray for one another. That's one of the times I feel God's presence most close. Resonance. He does it when we share our stories, like maybe like you just did. He does it when we open up his word. He does it when we pass the peace. He does it in the midst of suffering. He does it when we serve kids. He does it when we sing. That's the crazy thing that we still believe, that there is a God who wants to be with us. There's a God who shows up, who wants to minister to us. There's a Holy Spirit who still wants to take up residence in our lives and in this place. Then there's a Jesus who's alive and he's in the business of bringing new life to us and in this world. And despite everything that we do to alienate ourselves from this God, everything we do to try to accelerate this God and treat him as if he's not God but our pet, there's still one who speaks, the God who is God. This is the heart of what we believe. And at the same time, we can't control him. We can't control when we'll experience resonance. I can't promise that every time you come and take communion, you will be moved by the presence of God. I can't tell you that every time that you give, you will have this amazing resonant experience where the giving just spoke to you as you pressed give on your phone and you're emotionally drawn in. I can't promise that to you. I can't promise that every time you serve in kids or every time you wake up your child that you will have a resonant moment. Maybe it'll be more like waking me up, like a grizzly bear coming out of hibernation, just hungry and angry. But there will be times where God also shows up. Andy Root says this, Resonance is elusive because it's an encounter with true otherness. The congregation receives life. We receive life as God's family, not by hearing our own echo, not by turning my mic up, not by singing louder. Or by recognizing that it has more assets than it thought. By trying to get more buildings, more budget, more whatever. The congregation does not receive life that way. The congregation receives life by encountering a call from the one who is truly other. The spirit of the living God. Our God shows up 
and speaks to us and calls us to transform. But it's never a guarantee that it will happen at a certain time or a certain place because our God is not a tame lion. He shows up where and how and when he wants, but the promise is that he shows up, that he shows up. So in closing, what does this mean for us as a church? Well, we're at the beginning of this shift, like I said, and I just took a lot of time today to try to give us some language for this idea of resonance, which we'll be talking a lot more about in the coming weeks. But I just want to say three quick things as we close here. The first is that as a church, we want to organize ourselves around all of resonance. Around all of resonance. And this is what I mean by that. I think that the church, like the rest of the world, has become, we, we long for this resonance. We, we are deeply desiring resonance and not alienation. But we've become obsessed with just the first two parts of it. Which is that something speaks to us and we get moved emotionally. That it feels good. And so the focus and attention in church is usually on what will move people. And so we think if the church could move more people, maybe if we could have better music or better atmosphere, maybe get some fog machines up in here, or better preaching, which is like, it can't go much better than this. Just let's be honest, right? But we think if we could get these things, if they could be better, then we would experience more resonance. And it's not like we want to have worse music or worse atmosphere or worse preaching, but that the focus needs to shift for us. Not onto those things, but as to the God who stands behind them. And that that God is here and wants to meet with us, even today. He wants to meet with us, and he wants to transform us into new humans that look like Jesus. That a God who wants to use us, his church, as witnesses in the world, as people filled with the Spirit. And Mitch, next week, will talk about very practically how we can do that, how we can set a stage for that God to show up. It's still elusive, but how we can learn from the book of Acts to set that stage. But we want to be a group of people who organize ourselves around all of resonance, including transformation. And I think the church has mostly done a good job of getting people into auditoriums for an experience that's, that's like fun or cool, and not those last two things, transformation and elusiveness. Secondly, I want us to be a people who carry a hope that God might show up. As I was thinking and praying about it this week, I realized that this is a, probably something that, that I and all of us just need to learn to hope for. That our God actually does and will show up. You know, Pentecost was a one-time event, like I said, that happened in a very cultural context, but God is still alive. And he's still active, and he actually does want to show up in our lives and use us. And we, some of us, we just need to have that hope rekindled that God may actually be here and alive. And then thirdly, I want to be a people who excel at welcoming God's presence here and identifying his presence here, but also as we think about mission, that we learn to do that everywhere we go. God's presence here as a practice for identifying God's presence out there. So I was part of a missions organization before I, I became a pastor here for about 15 years. And they did, and they continue to do great work. But one of the big misses, I think, that I absorbed in my time, and it maybe it just says more about me than the organization and the way that we do mission, is that we often think about mission as, as if we're taking God somewhere. He's not somewhere, and therefore I need to go and take him to that place. And I'm super convinced that God wants to partner with us but it's not to take him places. God is already at work, and we are there as witnesses to his work in the world, to his presence behind every moment of resonance that happens 
these moments of fullness that could be even more full if they were attributed to a God who stands behind them. And so what would happen, that's the invitation of this series, if we focused our energy and attention on being people who are hyper-alert in this space for moments of resonance, that we create space for God to show up, and then we're aware of when he does and we follow him. But we're also becoming aware of it out there. These spaces of resonance, these places where God is speaking and standing behind what's going on in the world. Let's pray to close. Father, we thank you for... um, the opportunity to even just share together with one another the ways that you are at work in our world, the ways that you are at work in our lives, and the spaces that we feel alive and joyful and hopeful. And we thank you that you are a God who is at work, who a God who is continuing to make yourself known, and a God who wants to speak to us and even use us. And so I pray that through this time that we have together that you would create us into a group of people who are just excellent at at hearing your voice, sensing your presence, and learning to be transformed into people that look like Jesus. That this would be a space where we come together around your presence, and that we feel ministered to by you and by one another, and that we're able to then go and identify that in our families, in, in the neighborhoods that we live in, in our workplaces with our friends. And so in this time that we have now of response, we welcome you here. We just ask that you administer Would you meet with us for those who are broken, for those who have lost hope that maybe you do speak in the world? Would you minister to them in this time? For those of us who are feeling joy, may we cry out and sing out with hope that you are alive. May we pray for our friends and our neighbors. And may we just sense your presence here with us today. So we thank you for this time and pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.